0: Are you here? Hey, it's great to see you. Let me ask you: How familiar are you with the term "goat" that a lot of the kids are using these days? Well, it's an abbreviation for "greatest of all time." Now keep that term in mind, okay? Now, folks, today we've got an interview from the archives with Will Lee, the Will Lee. Paul was excited when he got to interview Will, and he's excited that it's coming out now on Spotify, Apple, iHeartRadio, and all the other places. Yep, the Will Lee interview, coming at you. Will Lee is one of the GOAT's greatest bass players of all time, okay? Will Lee was the sensational bassist on Letterman's Late Night Show from 1982 to the very last episode in 2015. He joined your host, Paul Edward Leslie, for an interview in-depth. Will Lee has released three studio albums of his own, as well as appeared on thousands of tracks by many of the biggest names in music. And what else? Well, Will Lee also performs as the bassist in the Beatles tribute band, the Fab Foe. You know, one important thing before the interview begins we appreciate every like, every share, every comment, but one big deal is every contribution. Just visit www.thepaulesley.comslash support and you can. Give yourself and others the gift of stories. Thank you. And we know with that, you're ready to hear the interview. This one originally went out on the radio, and now it's going out to you. Let's listen.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, it's our pleasure to welcome the one and only Will Lee. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Greetings. It's my pleasure. It's nice to be here. How are you guys doing? We are doing fantastic. It's it's All right. it's
1: been a long time that we've been corresponding, so it's it's great to finally bring this into the reality.
2: I appreciate your patience. I know how it's been, and you've been great about this. Thank you. It's great to finally connect.
1: Who is Will Lee? <laughs>
2: Well, that's a loaded question. I guess that's a different, different answer for everybody who, who gets asked that question. You know, In England, they would say, that's your penis. But uh, that's a whole other story. We're not going there. <laughs> uh, if you're a Sesame Street fan, you'd say, oh, that's the actor that played Mr. Hooper's real name. Right? Right. I don't know if you know that, but that's a little bit of trivia. When, when, when the Will Lee actor guy died, People can I actually got a note handed to me from backstage at the Letterman show, saying I was a really good friend of Will Lee, the actor's, and you 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 still have his name. Please wear it. Please carry it on respectfully and proudly. How do you think? So you're I hope doing? I do. <laughs> I'm, I'm no Mister Hooper. I'll tell you that. But, but uh, Will Lee these days is a, is a working musician. Very happy to be working. Happy to have a job and happy to to be in music, which I love the most. And I don't take it for granted for one minute. I really love uh, serving the music, making it as good as I can. What was life
1: like growing up in the Lee House?
2: Oh, boy. Well, you know, we were Texans and uh, in a small town called Huntsville, Texas, where my father was the head of the music department of the Sam Houston Institute of Technology. You've probably heard of it, S-H-I-T. No, that's just a joke. Um, Actually, it was called Sam Houston State Teachers College at the time. And my parents were both very heavily into jazz. So musically speaking, the Lee household was always filled with music. My mom was a singer, a la sort of Sarah Vaughan in that style of jazz singing. My dad was a bebop piano player at heart. And a jazz educator as a, as a as a livelihood, he could support his four kids. I'm the oldest of four. My brother Rob, my sisters Pat and Peg, are below me in age. So it was fun. We all sang together, and you know, enjoyed being together. And we're still close.
1: Can you remember specific songs that you heard playing around the house?
2: Um, I can tell you that as far as I'm, I can remember. When I was very young, I remember the sound of Miles Davis' muted trumpet. So I guess that could have been around the kind of blue era, maybe. I'm not sure what year that, that album is, but that was the first thing I remember hearing. And, and my parents also were big, you know, as I said before, fans of Sarah Vaughn and Ella Fitzgerald. And, you know, we heard a lot of Joe Williams in the house and we heard a, quite a good bit of Cannonball Adderley and Nancy Wilson. So, you know, and Miles Davis. And Bird, Charlie Parker, who a Dad had played with.
1: How did you come to fall in love with the bass?
2: Oh boy, well that that was that wasn't not an overnight uh, love at first sight thing. That was a matter of you know necessity when we were like eleven or twelve years old as kids in bands, and all the kids our age had the mentality of either drums or guitar. The functionality of bass was probably something that was a little bit over a, a young kid's head at that time. First of all, bass was A brand new instrument, very young instrument, and we're talking about like 1964, you know, 65, just after the Beatles hit hit America. So, you know, I was the drummer in our band, which we had put together. The band consisted of two guitar players, drums, and then we added a sax player. But I felt it would have been really nice to have filled out the sound and make us sound just a little little bit more professional. So I decided we needed a bass player. Unfortunately, nobody our age played bass. So we hired a drummer, and I said, oh, I'll just play bass, like it was nothing. Meanwhile, I was the lead singer of the band, and I, I hadn't realized how tough it was going to be to play bass and sing. So once a, once we had hired the drummer, it was kind of too late to fire him, so I kind of went for it, you know, and, and it seemed, it was pretty humbling to try to be able to, you know, keep singing lead and now playing bass underneath that, that vocalizing. But, you know, I kept sticking with it, and now it's like, you know, it's my passion, Are there any
1: other instruments that you tinker around with?
2: Um, I still play a bit of drums. We have this Beatles band, the Fab Faux, a very successful national touring kind of act. We go out every weekend. Um, The Fab Faux plays strictly Beatles music, and sometimes I'll go back and play drums when our drummer comes up front to sing a lead solo. And I play a little bit of keyboards, a little bit of guitar in that band. And I and I mess around on those instruments at home as a, as a songwriter. I kind of play keyboards, you know, and, you know at about the level of of a basic five year old. There have been a lot of interviews with great
1: bass players on this show, and I've asked a lot of them who their favorite bassists are. Who do you think the best bassist is? And there's been a lot of answers, but the name Will Lee has been on a few people's list. So who is on your list?
2: Oh man, and my list is huge. You have to go with with the masters that most people know about. Larry Graham. Jaco Pastorius is way high on the food chain. Chuck Rainey is my all-time favorite bass player. Of course, Larry Graham, the father of, of thump and slap funk. Uh, for finger funk, you've got the P- Pino Palladino, Rocco Prestia, you know, a lot of studio f- players from New York who I grew- came up with. Marcus Miller, Neil Jason, Sal Cuevas great Latin bass player, Ray Brown from the upright jazz world, as far, you know, in addition to Paul Chambers, and, and a guy who I, no day goes by without me thinking about, Mr. James Jamerson, the sound of Motown is way up on the top of the list as well, and many, many others.
1: You've done a lot of session work over the years. What was the first one?
2: Oh, my first session in New York? Yeah, your first... Oh, my first session period.
1: Yeah, first session period.
2: Um, I think the first time I ever went in the studio was uh, with a band that, that we had in Miami when I lived in Florida. It was called the Loving Kind, the Loving Kind, and that was very exciting. We we went into Criteria Recording Studios there, where lots of great hit records were made, and did a song that we performed on a local American Bandstand style type show on a Saturday. I think we lip-synced to our. Our re- recording that we had done—that was pretty cool. It was pretty exciting.
1: You played on so many people's records. Is it possible for you to pick a favorite session?
2: Well, there's lots of, you know, lots of favorite moments in the studio. Um, the outcome of, of some of the uh, sessions have have been, you know, better or not as good as the sessions themselves. But uh, there's one in particular that Steve Gadd and I both agree on that we played on that was one of the most fun and, and best unknown records that we ever did and it was the new york community choir and we did two albums with this choir in new york and both of them are so filled with joy i think everybody should go out and pick them up as fast as they can i think there's there's some of it has appearing lately as reissue on like maybe itunes or maybe as imports or i think you can find it on amazon but it's the new york community choir nycc there are two albums that we did, and both of them are really, really special.
1: There's someone I wanted to talk about in particular. You played on a lot of his albums. Uh, Our past friend, uh, uh, his music is still very much alive, Mr. Ralph McDonald. What was it like recording with Mr. McDonald?
2: Oh, boy, Ralphie. Well, Ralph, there's so many layers to my relationship with Ralph. Uh, One of them is is our our personal friendship, which was very, very strong and forever, you know, is dear to my heart and and I'm forever influenced by Ralph's uh, positivity that he gave me as a musician and friend. In fact, he gave me my nickname, Uncle Will, which he'll call me to this day. The Ralph McDonald musician that we all know about, responsible for writing all those great songs like Where is the Love, Mr. Magic, and uh, of course, uh, just, Two of us and many other album cuts and songs that we've heard a lot of um, is a guy who I can say very confidently is the is the person who introduced pop percussion playing to records. You know, he's the guy who who knew what to play on the tambourine, knew what to play on congas, knew what to play on cowbell shaker. You know, and exercised the utmost elegance and taste in everything he played. So, you know, if you were to look at a discography of Ralph McDonald, you'd be shocked, sure, at how many great records that he made happen.
1: How did you come to meet Paul Schaefer?
2: Um, well, back in the days when I was, well, same as today, I was a musician for hire. And on one in one instance, I had a lot of success with uh, being on a lot of Barry Manilow records and you know a lot of other records. And he came down from Canada and he was seeking out uh, a rhythm section of guys that he'd heard of and a producer that he knew from from a Manolo, from some of the Manilow hits, a, a guy with the name of Ron Dante, who a lot of people out there may know him as the voice of the Archies. <laughs> He's a very very special, very talented guy. Ron was Barry Manilow's producer, and Paul Schaefer had gotten uh, in touch with Ron to produce a demo that he was doing with a guy named Paul Jabara, who's uh, now deceased Paul, Paul Jabara is the guy that that wrote Last Dance for Donna Summer and also co-wrote It's Raining Men with Paul Schaefer. But anyway, Paul had hired Ron Dante to, to get us all together in the studio to record some of these songs that he had that he was arranging and writing with Mr. Paul Jabara. So Schaefer and I met in the studio on the first day of these recordings, and we hit it off right away as as great friends, and we've been really close ever since. You know, I couldn't believe how nice of a guy this guy from Canada was, Paul Schaefer, and what a great talent and great ear he had and how much he knew about music and how aware he was of of what I had done by the time he got to New York from Canada way back in the 70s. So we've we've always had a great relationship.
1: What do you think about Paul Schaefer as a musician?
2: Well, Paul Schaefer is a guy who is so well-schooled, uh, he can read music really well, but his, his hearing and his ears are so great when, when he picks up something that he listens to and he has a chart in front of him. I'm surprised he can even look at the chart because his ears take over and, you know, sort of always tell him what to play. He's like a walking archive of music history too. You can really he's really a guy that, that knows so much about pop music and it's really hard to fool him. Yeah, I always look look to him to try to find out what's the right part in the song that I'm supposed that I'm playing right now, especially if it's a cover song that you know, that we're trying to duplicate or something on the set at Letterman or or even in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremonies or wherever we play together.
1: Just a few minutes ago, you were talking about Barry Manilow, and both you and Sid McGinnis, you both played on Barry Manilow's albums. What is Barry like to work with in the studio?
2: Well, Barry is a real, he's like a real arranger, a real guy who knows how to orchestrate um, horns and strings and stuff, so he's a very schooled, accomplished musician, really knows his stuff.
1: There have been so many great, great acts that have played on the Letterman show, and you've gotten to play with so many of them. What are some of the favorite acts that you've just had to pinch yourself and thought, man, I'm going to get to play with him tonight or I'm going to get to play with her tonight? Who are those people?
2: Oh, man, there's so many. I mean, you know, Melissa Etheridge used to be almost a regular on the band. We would play with her. Um, Dr. John has been on the show a few times. Stevie Wonder came in started started testing the band, started singing obscure obscure songs, and thanks to Paul Schaefer, we could jump right in on them. But the number one guy, the number one musical guest of all time, without a doubt, was James Brown when he came on the show, especially in the very early days of Letterman, like maybe in 82, 83, came on and brought a couple of his own horn players, but used our band uh, to back him up, and it was just incredible. That was the greatest.
1: Just kind of as a "what if" kind of question. If, if Letterman was going to retire soon, what would you do?
2: Uh, I'd probably take a nap. <laughs> probably sleep for the first few hours, free few hours I've had in a long time, and then I would probably uh, maybe you know skip out skip out of town for a little vacation. And of course, I would get antsy and come right back and probably work on continuing working on my record, my own solo of CD that I'm working on.
1: Ah, so, so tell us about that. Is, is this a follow-up to O, or wh- what is it?
2: Well, yes, I, actually, I have so many unfinished pieces of music that I'm actually finishing up and trying to record, that I think it would be more than a follow-up. I think I'm at this time I'm probably working on about three albums. Oh, awesome. And I got some great people playing on great tracks. I just did a track with Billy Gibbons and Alan Toussaint, and... You know, I'm just doing one song at a time and seeing how it goes. And everything's coming out really nicely. Is there
1: any uh, tentative date that that will be coming out? or?
2: Well, I'm trying to get the first batch of stuff out by October.
1: Oh, wow. Fantastic.
2: And since this is uh, 2012 we're talking about, I'm talking in October 2000. So I'm busy.
1: Tell us about the Fab Faux. How did that come to be?
2: Oh, the Fab Faux is a miraculous a miraculous thing that we formed in, in 1998. And it started when, um, I was doing a little mini tour of Europe with, uh, the late, great Hiram Bullock. And Hiram used to always want to have a trio of three guys that played and sang. He could get three-part harmony going. And he actually, you know, had kind of exhausted his supply of singing drummers. Uh, nobody was available for this particular little tour that we were doing. So so in came a guy named Rich Pagano, who I'd never met before. And when Rich came and started playing with us, I could hear right away that he was very Ringo-influenced in his tuning of his drums and the way he played. And the way he sang was quite a lot like John Lennon. So... You know, as much of a Beatles freak as I've always been, I never had thought of having a Beatles band until I met this guy, Rich Piano. And after the tour was over, it kind of dawned on me it'd be fun to go on stage and play Beatles music as if we were bringing the records to the stage. You know, note-for-note, note, detail stuff. And I knew right away that you know a four-piece band wasn't going to work because you have to have, you know, like, you want to hear all those great percussion parts and... and doubled vocal harmonies and keyboard parts and stuff that are on the Beatle records but I think a lot of Beatle bands have made the mistake of trying to look like the Beatles. You know, maybe not a mistake that's probably a bad way to phrase it but they've suffered and they've, they've settled for having a four-piece band which really doesn't allow you to have all those great luxurious sounds so I knew right away that it needed to be a five-piece band and, you know, the genesis was, you know, first calling Rich having him say yes and then asking Jimmy Favino if he would kindly join our band because I knew he was a guy like Paul Schaefer who really was a musical historian and archivist who could really focus on getting all those details right and knew what some of those details were supposed to be better than I did in, in many cases. And then uh, we met two other guys, a guy named Jack Petrozelli and a guy named Frank Egnello, and that completed the five-piece band. And then we got busy and got started on trying to see what we could do as a five-piece band, to make it sound as much like the records as possible. And that's been many years of uh, trials and tribulations and lots of successes and lots of really great moments on stage replicating these fantastic Beatle albums and singles and stuff. So it's been really a great trip so far.
1: What was it like for you when you heard Paul McCartney had given you props as a bassist?
2: That was a moment that was actually kind of hard, you know, for me. It was really... Uh, a tearful moment, one that uh, I still can't sort of relish and take great pride in knowing that, you know, he has some respect for me as, as I do for him. You know, I don't think he'll ever, ever be able to know how much influence he's had on me and every other bass player and actually anybody who has ever tried to think melodically, you know, in this in this uh, pop world that we have. So it's been incredible to, to see that in print. Yeah. To see Paul, Paul McCartney saying, you know, it, it's it, any any great bass players that you dig any you know, and have him say, Well, Will Lee and Dino Paladino come to mind and have have me included in that statement was pretty amazing.
1: Yeah. Magical. Yeah. Oh, tell us Humbling, ab- least. Tell us about the gig that they did. Uh this was I think it was two years ago when they played on top of the marquee there.
2: Oh yeah, that was really fun. Well, you know, here the Letterman Show takes place at the Ed Sullivan Theater, which uh, to me means the place that the Beatles first were seen in America, and which really changed the shape of all pop music from that day forward when the Beatles hit, hit the scene, you know, and showed us what they looked like, and, you know, fashion-wise, and they took a lot of chances, and they were very confident, and they knew they were, they were getting over, and it was incredible. So to see him return to that that stage to that to that building where he he and these other his other bandmates the rest of the Beatles changed the course of history uh, all I could say to him was welcome home.
1: What was recording the Birdhouse album with your dad like?
2: Well, my dad was a, be- a bebopper, you know, and his uh, view of you know what music should sound like is all about four four jazz. And how well something can can swing, and how well a song is composed. And he had a little history with uh, playing with with Charlie Parker, Bird, who uh, you know who kind of laid down the law as far as what bebop is supposed to sound like. And my dad was a great improviser himself, and you know uh, we thought great place for he and I to come together would be in a setting of uh, Charlie Parker material. So we went in the studio as father and son with a, with a bunch of other great musicians, um, Billy Hart on drums, and we invited uh, other guys to, to perform with us, Randy Brecker and Michael Brecker and Lou Soloff on trumpet and the great Bob Durow on vocals and John Tropez on guitar. And we got together and played a bunch of uh, Charlie Parker material in our own sort of way. And, uh, you know, it was heartwarming to look over and see Dad playing piano with me in the studio, something that had never happened before. So it was a wonderful experience to, to have something on tape, so to speak, something recorded with my dear Dad, who just recently deceased. So it's a great memory and a great uh, keepsake of our musical relationship.
1: As uh, someone who has performed on so many albums has performed with so many great artists of our time, has recorded albums of his own. All the things that you've done, do you still have some dreams that you want to pursue? What are they?
2: Well, for me, I mean, I have a ton of things that I would love to finish writing. I keep, you know, I I keep these crazy ideas in my head and I just want to see them through. So for me, it's like to try to finish uh, these crazy songs that I've started writing. And, you know, that's kind of how O happened my first solo album. There's quite a few original pieces of music on there. So, you know, just to kind of nurture these tunes that I've written, and I I try to be a writer who's who's not derivative. I don't try to, like, do my version of this other person's song or anything like that. I try to just go with my instinct and see how far I can take it. So, you know, for me, I have sort of an endless supply of unfinished ideas. I want to keep working on them until they're finished and move on to the next song. And that's how these songs are are coming uh, for this new album or set of albums that I'm doing right now.
1: What is the best thing about being Will Lee? (laughs) Uh,
2: For me, it's being the husband of Sandrine Lee. That's the best thing about being Will Lee. Sandrine is my wife, who I'm very proud of, who's a great, great person, who's an amazing photographer, is having a lot of success as a photographer these days. And you can look at her website, sandrinelee.com. That's S-A-N-D-R-I-E-L-E-E dot com and see some of what she's up to. She's just fascinating for me to watch her grow. She did
1: the photography for one of Ralph's albums, if I remember. Isn't that correct? That's true. Yeah. the
2: Homegrown. Grown. And then the next one, another one called Mixed Emotions. Oh, and yeah. she. She's also the photographer of uh, Esperanza Spaulding's two CDs, Pat Matheny's last album and Mike Stern's next album, and many, many, many other things she's doing.
1: For my last question, for anyone who's listening to this, wherever they are, whenever they hear it, what would you like to say to all the people listening in?
2: Um, boy, that's a loaded question, man. I, think I actually have an answer for that. If anybody's listening... Um, this country of ours has become way, way more divided than I've ever seen, and there's really no sense in that at all. I think the only way we're ever going to be able to move forward as a country and as as fellow human beings is just to, just to put our differences aside and start loving each other.
1: Well spoken. Mr. Lee, it's been a pleasure to talk to you.
2: Thank you, Paul. I sure appreciate your time and, again, your Waiting for this interview to happen?
1: Well, it happened.
2: (laughs) Good man. Thank you. All right,
1: man. Hang in there. Thanks so
2: much. All right. Take care of yourself.
0: Bye bye. Thank you for stopping by today. If you enjoyed our program, consider telling a friend about it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people just like you. So you want to keep the show going, right? Go to thepaulesley.com. That's ThePaulLeslie.com Click on Support the Show, And thanks to everyone who contributes Performance of the intro music is courtesy of John Primorano The Entertainer Written by Scott Joplin End credit theme music is courtesy of John Primorano The traditional song Corina Corina Your announcer is Dan Gold Hey, that's me! The show is hosted and produced by Paul Leslie. And we'll see you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour.